Welcome, Pastor Jim. Don't you guys love our pastor? Isn't he awesome? Well, it's good to be in church, amen? You guys ready to get in the Word? Yes, sir. All right, Colossians chapter 1, please. Colossians chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful tonight to gather together in the name of Jesus. Our desire is to know him better, to learn of him, to to grow in our faith. And and so as we study who he is and and what he has done on our behalf, I pray that that you you would work in our midst through your mighty and powerful Holy Spirit transforming us into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. All right. Well, Colossians is an awesome book written by the Apostle Paul while in jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you would never know that this guy was in jail by the way he writes. I know people in jail, and they don't write anything like the Apostle Paul. I mean, this guy, always encouraging always exhorting, always warning us, always seeking to remind us what is most important in life, always seeking to refresh us in the Lord. Now, I believe that Paul, that he spoke like this, that he he wrote like this, that he lived like this because he had the right perspective. He had a biblical one. He had the right mindset. He had his mind set on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And because Jesus had been given the proper place in his life at the top of the list. You see, when I or when, when you give Jesus the preeminence, the, the superiority, the number one place in our hearts and in our lives, then we can handle anything that comes our way. And everything else in our lives will fall into place. The way that we treat people, the way that we respond to trials, how we handle difficult decisions. Now there in Colossus, people were redefining who Jesus was. They were saying that he was just a, a created spirit being. And they were redefining how a person got saved. It wasn't through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It was through your own spiritual disciplines. It was through your own good works, your own holiness. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to them because what these false teachers were doing was was taking away Jesus' preeminence in the hearts and minds of the believers. And it was having a negative impact on them. And so Paul writes, and I believe the Spirit is speaking to us, and I believe to all who will turn to the book of Colossians, to set the record straight once and for all, that this is who Jesus is. He is the God of the universe, of the cosmos, the God of the church, and the God of our reconciliation. And being thus, he deserves the utmost place in our hearts and in our lives. Amen? Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the first point that we have here is that Jesus is the God of the universe. Now, I remember the first time that I ever heard someone say that Jesus is God. I was a brand new Christian, and I was at Calvary Chapel, Petaluma. It was a Thursday night Bible study. And Pastor Zach Vestnes was teaching through the book of Revelation. And he said, Jesus is God. And that truth rang deep down in my soul. You see, this is what the Bible teaches over and over again. And this is where we want to get our theology from the Bible. Not from uh, the History Channel. Not from picking and choosing from various religions. That what seems good to us. We get our theology from the word of God, from the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. And right here in our text, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now that word is interesting to me. In the Greek, it's icon, and it means a a portrait or a likeness. Now, let's look at a biblical example of how this word is used to help us grasp, to, to grasp, to understand, and, and to comprehend what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us. You remember there in Luke chapter 20, some of the Pharisees and, and the Herodians came to Jesus, and they wanted to, to, to trap him in his words, and, and so they came to him and they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And we won't get into all of that stuff. But Jesus says, oh my goodness, Bring me a coin. And, and so they bring him a coin. And he, and he holds this coin up. He's going to silence these guys. And I just picture him holding up a 50-cent piece with John F. Kennedy's picture on there, okay? And he's holding this thing up in the air. And he says, whose image is this? Whose icon? Whose portrait is this? And they looked and they said, oh, that's Caesar's. You see, by looking at that image, they knew exactly who it was. By carefully examining the the facial features, the the jawline and the cheekbones and and his nose and his eyes and the hair and the crown, they could tell beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was Caesar. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us. By looking at Jesus... You can tell, by looking at his icon, at his image, you can tell exactly who he is. He is God. Now, not by looking at his outward features, because he would have looked just like you and just like me, except for a Middle Eastern tint to him. He had arms, he had legs, he had a mouth, he wasn't glowing, he didn't have a halo, well, he glowed one time. He had a halo over him, (laughs) okay? He ate, he he slept, He drank, he was tired, he laughed, he was a human being. But if you looked at his attributes, if you looked at his his person and his ability, then you would see, oh, this is no normal human being. This is God. Hebrews chapter one and verse three, my paraphrase, Jesus radiates the reality that he is God. John the apostle a fisherman that Jesus called to to walk with him. He spent three and a half years with Jesus. 
three and a half years with him. And this is his testimony about Jesus. In his first letter, chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, hey, we, we spent a lot of time with Jesus. We, we heard his teachings. He spoke like no man ever spoke before. We saw him. We saw the things that he did. We, we looked closely at everything he did and everything he taught. I mean, we were in close quarters with him. Our hands handled him. And this is our conclusion about Jesus. It's he is the word of life. He is the word who was with God and who was God. He is the word who became flesh. He is the one who is from the beginning. I mean, who else but God alone can transform the elements, can take a pot of water and without putting anything in it can transform it into wine? Who else but God alone can speak a word and calm a hurricane? You know anybody like that? Who else but God alone can take a meal for one, five little barley loaves, little crackers, and two little sardines, and multiply that and feed 5,000 people? And we're not talking like each person gets a little slice of the bean like Tiny Tim in a Christmas carol, okay? We're talking everybody is stuffed. They can't even move, and there's leftovers, Who else but God alone can speak a word and heal a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years? Who else but God alone can speak and a person who's been dead and decaying in the grave for four days can come out perfectly normal? No one but God alone. Who else but God alone, without even saying a prayer, can silence the mouth of demons? Who else but God alone can predict his own death in the exact way it's going to happen and then raise himself from the dead? You know anybody like that? Only God can do that kind of stuff. Who else but God alone can forgive sins? Who else but God alone knows the thoughts of our heart? These are all things that Jesus did, and that's because he is God. You see, 2,000 years ago, The invisible God, who is a spirit, and that's why he is invisible, he became visible when he clothed himself in human flesh and stepped through the virgin womb of Mary. Jesus is God. And so Paul is saying by looking at Jesus, you can clearly see who he is. Now I believe that there is perhaps some in here tonight who have never given Jesus a good look in their life. You've heard about Jesus, you know people who who look to Jesus, but you've never taken a good look at him yourself, his his word, his his promises, what he offers to you. Charles Spurgeon, he's an awesome guy. When he was 15 years old, he's unconverted, and he found himself in a primitive church, that's what his, his own words. There's like 15 or 20 people there. The preacher didn't even show up for whatever reason. And so the shoemaker gets up to preach the word. And he opens the text and it's, look to me all you ends of the earth and be saved. And and the shoemaker is is preaching and is preaching and is preaching. And and he gets to the end of his sermon. It's like 10 minutes long. (laughs) And he looks at Mr. Spurgeon, this young kid. And he says, you need to look to Jesus, and right there, at that very moment, he got it. 
He got saved because he looked to Jesus and realized who Jesus was and who he is. God, the Savior of the world. Next, he says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to bolster their false doctrine that Jesus is a created being. He's the, he's the archangel Michael, the brother of Lucifer, they say. But in so doing, they disregard the culture to which he is writing, and they ignore the context in which he is writing. You see, in that culture, the firstborn was more of a position, spoke more, was more of a reference to a position than to a chronology, okay? Uh, the firstborn uh, had special rights and, and privileges, okay? They received a double portion of, of all of the father's possessions. They got all the goods. They got the authority in the family, the number one place. They got to call the shots. And they didn't have to be the oldest sibling to hold that position. And I'm gonna give you guys a couple examples since you're asking. Genesis chapter 25, Jacob and Esau. God says, the older shall serve the younger. God ordained that Jacob would hold the position of the firstborn, that he would be the one in authority in that family, that he would receive the blessing. Psalm chapter 89 and verse 27, God speaking to David says, I will appoint him my firstborn the most exalted of the kings of the earth. David was the youngest in all of his family. And he wasn't the first king, he was the second king. And so when, God, when, when the Bible is speaking of firstborn, it's speaking of an exalted position. Jesus is the firstborn, the most exalted in the universe. All of creation has been given to him. It's his inheritance, He calls the shots in this universe. He's the one with the power, and he is the one with the authority. And I believe that he testifies to this as well in the scriptures. I'm going to give you a couple. John chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. And then in Matthew chapter 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's as though he's saying, I am the firstborn. So clearly, Paul is speaking of Jesus' position, that he is over all creation. Now Paul is going to give us the context of why he is titled the firstborn or the ruler and the inheritor. It's because he is the creator of all things. Verse 16 says that Jesus, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses have a serious problem here, okay? See, the text says that Jesus created all things. But how could Jesus create all things if he himself was created? I mean, he couldn't have created himself, and so therefore, he couldn't have created all things. And so they've got a serious problem here in this text. And so what they do, what they have done, is they take little brackets And they've placed them between two words, all and things, and they insert the word other. Jesus created all other things. They believe that God created Jesus and then used Jesus to create all other things. But that word other isn't in the Greek text. It's a lie. Because they know what this text is teaching. 
It's teaching that Jesus is the creator. He created all things by him and for him, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Life did not evolve into existence. It didn't magically appear from a big bang. It came from the mouth of Jesus. He spoke the world into existence. Him working with the Father and working with the Spirit, the Holy Trinity is responsible for Genesis chapter one. The sun and the moon. I love the moon. I love the moon. There's Reading through commentaries, these guys got some incredible facts about the universe, like billions of miles. I don't understand any of it. So you're not going to get any of that from me. You're going to get my facts. The moon. I love the moon. Okay? I go outside on a clear evening, and the stars are out, and the moon is in the sky, and it's, it's big, and it's bright, and it's glowing. You know what I see? I see a face in the moon. A face looking down on me. God put that face in the moon to let me know he's incredible. That's his handiwork. He's an artist. I'm like, wow, there's a man in the moon. There must be a God. (laughs) So he made the sun and the moon and the star and the the land and the sea and the plants. Okay, I'm going to tell you what my favorite plant is, okay? It's the common uh, weed in all of our yards, the dandelion, okay? You know that little yellow flower that's in your grass? I love that flower. And I'm going to tell you, you like the dandelion? I'm going to tell you why. Okay? You know when it dries out and it's white and it's fluffy? Okay? When I, they're everywhere. Okay? And so I see them all the time. And I like to pick them. And I like to see my kids take them up to their face and blow on them. Okay? And just see the look on their face. And, and, and we don't say a wish when we blow those. We make a prayer. We say a prayer when we blow the dandelions. And the second reason why, I'm li- why I like those is it shows the genius of God. They're little stems with like little parachutes or helicopters on them. And so when the wind blows it, they all kind of scatter and then replant themselves. It's, it's genius. And, and Jesus did that. He created the fish and the animals and the bugs and, and the microbes. I took a microbiology class. It's incredible. This invisible world that Jesus has created. We get a lot of our medicine from the microbial world. All of our antibiotics come from this world that Jesus has created. Incredible. Angels. and He, he, he created everything. And he even created you. And he even created me. We were created by him and for him. Like Pastor Ross always says, he wanted a Ross on this planet. He thought us up, okay? Psalm 139 and verse 13 says that he knit us together in our mother's womb. He numbered the very hairs on your head, if you have any. (laughs) He put the freckles on your face. Boom, got him, got him. I'm fired, I know. <laughs> Turn in my resignation right now. He determined how tall we would be. He determined when we would be born, where we would be born. He numbered our days, how long we're going to live. What does this mean? It means that you're special to God. It means that, that he cares about you, that he loves you. It means that, that you have a purpose. I used to ask these questions to myself. What is my purpose? Why am I here? Why do I exist? The answer is right here in our text. By him 
for him. You exist to be in a personal relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can pursue entertainment, riches, wealth, education, love, but none of that will satisfy you. None of that will quench that thirst within your soul. Why? Because you're created by him and for him. If you don't have him, you'll never be satisfied. Jesus is the fountain of living water. If you come to him, he says, you'll never thirst again. You're created by him and for him. And then in verse 17, it says that Jesus is before all things. Well, of course he is before all things. He is the maker of all things, amen? And so this is speaking of his preexistence, of his eternality. Before the manger, before Bethlehem, before the virgin's womb, before Abraham was, before the sun and the moon and the stars, before the angels were created, Jesus was the great I am, the everlasting God. And then it says, in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter one and verse three says that Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. You see, the universe would completely unravel if it weren't for Jesus. He didn't just wind the world up like a clock and let it go. That's what deism teaches. It teaches that God doesn't care, that he made the world, he set it in motion, and then he stepped back, and he no longer interferes. He doesn't care. Because if he did care, then why is there hurricanes? Why is there tornadoes? Why are there tsunamis? Why are people dying? Because why isn't God doing anything? He doesn't care. But our text says something completely different. It says that he is here. It says that he is involved, that he does care. Because if he, if he wasn't involved, if he, if he wasn't holding all things together, it would be a lot worse. A little science lesson. Okay, the universe we know is composed of atoms, the, the smallest building block of matter. I'm made up of all these invisible things we call atoms. This building, the, the air that we breathe is composed of these things that Jesus made. Now in the, the center of these atoms, in the nucleus, are these positively charged protons. That's what they call them, positively charged protons. And this, there's a whole bunch of them, and they're, they're tightly packed together. And this, this boggles the mind of scientists because there is a law of electric charges that says this, that opposite charges attract, but like charges rebel, repel, rebel, <laughs> repel, okay? You take a magnet, take two magnets, and you try to put them together, what happens? They don't want to come together, do they? That's what's going on inside a nucleus of an atom. They should be exploding, but for some reason, there's, there's some mysterious force that's holding it together. They label it the strong force. But the Bible here says that it's Jesus, that he holds all things together by his powerful word. Now, if he can hold the entire universe together, don't you think he can handle the things that are going on in your life? The biggest problem that you have is nothing for Jesus. 
He's got all the power and all the authority in the universe. Let's bring our problems to him, amen? All right, now let's look at verse 18, wherever it is. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So our second point is that Jesus is the God of the church. Now what is the church? Is it a building? Is it an organization? Is it a place that that we assemble? Well, in the Bible, the word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, and it means called out ones. It's speaking of a people, a people who have been born again, who are filled with the Holy Spirit because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have called on him, then he has called you out and you are a part of his church. And he says the church is called his body. Now this speaks of our intimate union with Jesus Christ. I I think of my hand. My hand is, is connected to my body. And because of that connection, it reaps the benefits of my blood. My blood flows to my hand and brings it nourishment and brings it life. But if my hand were to be severed from my body, it would cease to be. It would die. In the same way, you and I are connected to Jesus Christ. We are a part of his body. Maybe you're a hand or maybe you're a foot or, or a, to- what, a toenail, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but you're connected to him. And because of your connection to Jesus, because you are in his body, you reap the benefits of his blood. His blood flows to your soul and brings you eternal life and eternal nourishment. But for those who are not in the body, those who are not a part of his church, those who aren't connected to Christ, they're dead because they don't have the benefits of his blood flowing to their soul. And then it says here that that Jesus is the head of the body. Now our head is command central, is it not? My head calls the shots in this body. When my head says snap hand, it snaps. When my head says clap, my hands clap, my head is calling the shots. And so here it's a reference to Jesus's authority. He is the head of the body, his authority in the church. That he he is our master, that he is our Lord, that he is the one that we are supposed to be listening to. And that's why uh, when we get together, uh, like on nights like tonight, we're not studying the philosophies of man or, or self-help material, but we're studying the word of God, the word of Jesus Christ, because he is the head and we take our commands from him. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to baptize or baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded. You see, Jesus is the head. We are to teach the the good stuff about eternal life and and forgiveness and encouragement and hope in the Holy Spirit, but also the politically incorrect stuff, the socially unacceptable and and unpopular things like hell and, and homosexuality. 
We can't water those things down because we're not in charge. It's his word, and that's what we are to teach. Now, I have met so many people who call Jesus Lord, but don't do what he says. I have stood outside of so many bars, evangelizing, okay? <laughs> don't You're talking to people who are there on a Friday or Saturday night. You ever heard about Jesus, and they take a drink, take a puff, belch, oh yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And they fall over. Doesn't make any sense to me. This one time we were in Petaluma, and a guy stumbled out of the bar, and he bumped into me and my buddy, and we got him down on the bench, and we started talking to him, asking if he knew anything about Jesus, and, and he confessed, I'm a deacon in my church. He was calling him Lord, but, but he wasn't doing what Jesus had commanded him to do. Now, I have a really good friend, and uh, he's really healthy. He takes good care of his body, okay? He, uh, he eats healthy, uh, he works really hard, he, he exercises every single day. I mean, this guy, pristine health. You look at him, man, you got perfect body, perfect healthy body, except for one thing. He's got a tremor in his hand. It's like this, okay? He can't control it. He says, with my mind, I, I'm speaking to my hand and I'm saying, stop moving. This is embarrassing, just stop moving, but my hand, it doesn't listen. It wants to do its own thing. And this is what so many of us are prone to do. The head, Jesus, is giving us the orders, but we're not paying attention. We're doing our own thing. Oh, we know the orders, don't we? Because we're people of the word of God. He says, love as I have loved, be humble and gentle, Esteem other people better than yourselves. Work hard, no matter what job you have. Do it unto me. Work like you're working for me, like I'm your boss. Avoid every form of evil. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives, so on and so forth. We know the commands. And he gives these commands so that he has a healthy body. But when we refuse to take orders from the head, when we say, no, I'm going to do my own thing, then, then we're the tremor in the body. We're the tremor in the body doing our own thing. I'm just going to do whatever I want, God. It doesn't make any sense. He's the head. We are the body. We take our orders from Jesus. And it says that he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He is the beginning. It speaks of Jesus being the source of of salvation, the source of the church's existence and, and being. And he is the firstborn from among the dead. This speaks of his exalted position amongst those who are in heaven. And of course, we wouldn't even be going to heaven if it weren't for Jesus. Of course, he gets the supremacy. Quote from uh, commentator Kent Hughes, he was, the, speaking of Jesus, he was the most important of all who have been raised from the dead because without his resurrection, there could be no resurrection for others. Jesus gets the supremacy because without Jesus, there is no such thing as heaven for us. There's no such thing as salvation. There's no such thing as forgiveness of sins or eternal life. 
That's why he gets the supremacy. That's why he gets the exalted position of firstborn. Because he has made it possible. Now let's finish up and look at verses 19 through 23. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a servant. So our final point is that Jesus is the God of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is all about restoration. It's all about healing, about fixing a a broken relationship, settling a dispute that has separated two parties. They once had this, this wonderful relationship, but then there was an offense, and it caused a rift, and they're no longer talking, they're no longer speaking, they don't even like each other. But then somehow, some way, over the course of time, the offended party found a way to forgive. And there was restoration, there was reconciliation, and that uh, relationship was restored. Now, I want to close with a story. Uh, About 30 years ago, when I was just a, a baby, I lived with my mom and my dad, okay? And my mom got really, really sick, and she did not make it. And uh, my dad, he didn't take it very well. The grief and, and the pain and the sorrow, he was looking to drown all of that out. And so he was on drugs and, and he was on booze. And he got back together with, with his ex, who was my half-sister's mom. And one, one night they were together or one day, whatever it was, and, you know, the drugs and the alcohol and the confusion, just out of their mind, uh, they got in a fight and, and he took her life. He took her life. And uh, he went on the run for about a year and then the cops got him and he was put in prison. He was given uh, a life sentence with the possibility of parole, okay? Now, can you imagine how the victim's family must have felt the pain and, and the grief, the anger of what happened, of what he did to them. I can't imagine. I mean, could they ever be reconciled? I mean, that sounds like an impossibility. Now, every five years, my dad would go up for parole, okay? Five years or so, I'm just, I'm not really sure. That's how it is now, every five years. And at this parole hearing, they would go over the crime, they would go over his case, they would review all of the details. And then at the very end, they would ask uh, the victim's family, the offended party, if they had anything to say. And they would be there, and they would stand up, and they would say, lock the door and throw away the key. May he never get out. Something like that. I don't know, I wasn't there. 
But it was stuff like that, okay? So reconciliation was an impossibility. My dad still tried. He was the offender. He would still try, though, sending them letters, asking for their forgiveness. He would send family members over to their house to call them and, and to go over there and say, hey, he's really sorry. You know, he wished he could take it back, that kind of stuff. But reconciliation, you see, it can't come from the, the offender. It must come from the offended party. That's the only way reconciliation can ever happen. Now, I want to fast forward. Sorry, it's kind of a long story. To four years ago. The family, the, the victim's family, the offended party, uh, they found a way. They found a way to forgive him. And they went to the jail and they, they formally accepted his apology. And they began to build a relationship with him. Reconciliation began to happen. Now it gets even more amazing than this. This February, my dad came up for parole again. Okay? And they went through the crime and they went through the case and, 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 and at the very end, they asked, uh, does the victim's family, does the offended party have anything that they want to say? And they stood up and they said, let them go. We've forgiven. We've been reconciled. That's what reconciliation is. It's a total transformation of a relationship that was broken. Now the gospel is an even greater story of reconciliation than that. You see, each and every single one of us is responsible for destroying our relationship with God. We have offended him over and over again in thought, in word, in deed, in action. Our sins are piled up to the heavens, if you would. And that's why there's this separation between us and God. That's why we don't know us, know him. And reconciliation, is impo- it's impossible for us to fix that on our own because we are the offender. Reconciliation had to come from God because he is the one who has been sinned against. He is the one who has been offended. And so he had to find a way to forgive and to bring about reconciliation. And he did. And that's what this text is teaching. It's teaching that that God reconciled us to himself. He removed that which was separating us from him through the cross. He left heaven, he came down to earth, clothed himself in a human body and took all of our offenses upon himself and allowed himself to be crucified for our sins because he loves us and because he wants a restored relationship. And then I just see it as like Jesus comes to our our hearing with us. And the judge goes through our case, you've sinned, you, you've sinned, you've, you've sinned, you're, you're guilty, I don't see any reason to let you go. Does, does the offended party have anything to say? And Jesus stands up, he's the one we've sinned against, and he says, let them go. Let them go. I have paid the price. So do you see why Jesus is worthy of all of the supremacy in our life? He's the God of the cosmos. He created everything that we know and that we enjoy. 
He's the God of the church. He thought salvation up. And he's the God of reconciliation. He's the one who has come and made salvation possible through his own death and resurrection. He is worthy of the supremacy. He is worthy of the number one place in your heart and in your life. One question to leave you with. Does Jesus have it in your life? Does he have it? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, which just tells us the truth. It tells us that Jesus is God, that he is the creator, that, that he thought up salvation with you and with the spirit, and that he came and, and made reconciliation with you possible through his own death on the tree. We are so thankful and we want you, Jesus, to be number one in our hearts and in our lives because you're worthy. You're our God and our King and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.